How far do people get today? You finished the whole chapter one? Yes. You finished the whole chapter one or you finished the whole unit one? The unit one wasn't the whole chapter one. No, chapter one. Yeah, all the questions on chapter one. So. Okay, well then I have to give you questions for Monday, all the questions in the second half of chapter one. Because there's a lot more questions. What? All the sheets? No, just the chapter one. Oh. Chapter one is the whole thing. Yeah. No, okay, just the first page of chapter one. Oh, okay. I'm like, wow. That's impressive. Okay. Okay. Fine. So we learned yesterday that the purpose of the Tanya is to explain the verse that it's very exceedingly near to you in your mouth and your heart to do it. And what was difficult about that? First of all, what's the it? Torah mitzvah. Right. And what's difficult about that verse? Why do the whole book? How's it near to your heart? Right. And what do we, what is what is the definition of near for our purposes? You can do it on your own. You don't need someone else to do it for you. Right? If you're delegating it out to other people, that's far. Right? That's unreachable for you, right? As the, as the apostle as it says, if it was over the sea, you'd have to send someone to get it. If it was in the heavens, you'd have to send someone up there to get it. Okay. And the manner in which that this is going to be explained, how is it, how it is um, near to you, when your heart is going to be a long, short explanation. Right? So we contrasted that there is a long, short versus short, long. Long and short means what? What does long mean? Short. A lot of process. A lot of process? More than you want. More than you want. And short because you, you, get have, you get there. And short but long means? It's easier to get there, but it's easier. But you don't really arrive. Now, physically that's a little bit weird because how can you arrive and not arrive unless you're talking about Google Maps, which might make you think that you've arrived and you haven't. But, since we're talking about closeness to Hashem <coughs> the Torah and mitzvah that we do in our heart that we actually feel that closeness um, we spoke about the idea of enthusiasm and vitality um, in our Judaism which is something that everybody has to work on and there's a simple way of explaining what the two different approaches are the short but long way which would be to work on one specific part of Judaism a mitzvah or an idea or a concept and put all your emphasis on trying to have a deeper appreciation and a greater enthusiasm about that part. Now, will that work with regard to that specific thing? If you do it right? Yeah. yeah. But does it carry over to the entire Judaism? No. In fact, now it doesn't carry over. Depending on what it is, it may even pull you away from other things. So we'll use a controversial example. You'll get to realize that I'm not, I like using controversial examples. Um, You've heard of the mitzvah of uh, knowing God? Does it take time to know God? Does it take time to know uh, human anatomy? Okay, so that's the creation. How much time does it take to know the creator? It's take a while, right? So what if you make your life all about, you really want to do the mitzvah of knowing God? It might take a lot of your time, right? What other mitzvahs or other parts of Judaism might that cause you to neglect? Yeah, like taking care of, let's say, wife and children? Mm. So, someone who could possibly, I don't know, if you're right, say, I really want to know God and like, 
run away to some secluded place and spend all the time studying and thinking about God. In the meantime, like their wife and children don't know what happened to them because they've become very devoted to this one mitzvah they're really enthusiastic about. Okay. Do you think that ever happened? Yeah. Yeah. What does that tell you? That becoming very enthusiastic about one thing can have very serious cost. Now, it could work the other way. You can be very enthusiastic about like something very practical that you start to devalue people, spend time, you know, getting closer to God mentally and emotionally, because you can't see the physical, tangible results. Yeah. Okay. What's the way that the, what's the, what would be the long way? It's a lot of process, but it's actually short. And remember what that was. But something all parts of Torah mitzvahs, all parts of Judaism have in common. Connecting to God. Connecting to God. So if what you really work on is valuing connecting to God, then what will end up happening? It spills into, into all aspects of Judaism. Okay. Now, I told you that there was how many explanations of this part? I remember? Two. 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 And um, the first one I gave you was the deeper or the simpler? Simple. So you ready for the deeper one? Yeah. Okay. Now I have to do some history. Okay. I mentioned yesterday that Chassidus was controversial. Now, where did Chassidus come from? Does anyone know where Chassidus came from? If you say God, you're right, but want a little more specific. It came, God, what's like the next step? God too. The Baal Shem Tov. Okay, does anyone know what was in between God and the Baal Shem Tov? What? Well, no. There was a prophet. His name was Achia Hashiloni. Achia Hashiloni. Um, everyone's heard of Eliyahu Navi Elijah the prophet? Okay. So his master, the one who taught him how to be a prophet, was Achia Hashiloni. Do you know who taught Achia Hashiloni how to be a prophet? King David. I'm talking about people that are on the scale of prophets, pretty high up there. Anyway, Achia Shiloni is the one who was the messenger to communicate Chassidus from God to the Bashakta. So for 10 years, Achia Shiloni taught the Hasidic interpretation of the entire Torah to the Bashakta. And after 10 years, he said, okay, now you go spread the light to everyone else. That's where it comes from. You look like you want to ask a question. Well, why didn't he just spread the light himself? It was dead. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's been dead for thousands of years. It's a fair question. <laughs> it's a very fair question. <laughs> Balshemto, you know, I mean, the Balshemto used to come back after he was dead and teach his disciples also, but that doesn't help the rest of us. <laughs> King David, Eliyahu they lived, you know, what, two and a half more, closer to 3,000 years ago. Okay. Anyway, so one of the, one of the things that the Baal Shem Tov um, revealed, which was always part of the Torah, but was um, not necessarily focused on, um, is that every Jew has an ability to connect to God. Now, what was thought before them? What was thought before them was a very simple argument. What's harder to understand? 
human anatomy or the one who created human anatomy? Okay, so if you have somebody who is illiterate, mentally challenged, has no time, those are all either those are one or the other, so has no time to spend um, using their mind because they have to like, make a living. Presumably, you wouldn't want them operating on you, right? You wouldn't want them to be a doctor. They're mentally challenged, they don't have time, they're ignorant. You want someone who has the capacity and opportunity to develop a, a rigorous understanding of human anatomy, plus some training in what they're doing before they take a knife and start chopping you apart, right? Okay. Okay, so, using an expression from the last week. So, most people, the common person, is not really capable of being a doctor. That makes sense? Okay. So then, by logic, is the common person capable of really knowing God? Why? What's harder to really understand? They're different. Why are they different? What? You have a what? See, this is the controversial thing. The Baal Shem is like every Jew has an instinctual knowledge of God. Before the Baal Shem came on the scene, there was understanding. Wait, you, how do you know God? You know God by learning and thinking and reflecting. And, and so there's a pyramid. The bottom of the pyramid are the illiterate people. The people are mentally challenged. The people have no time to develop you know, any inner capacities. They're literally trying to survive. And at the top of the pyramid, you have the smart people who have lots of time and with lots of books available and they can study and reflect and ponder and those people they really know God and then you can adjust where you are in that period well because I don't know but maybe because God's creation you know is is everything so like yes the Torah the word and also God created all these other things that maybe you know in a different way and so you know God's God that that's the second controversial thing is that traditionally in Judaism God God that's found through nature is, is like the gateway to idolatry so finding say I discover God by going out in the forest like okay you're on your way to becoming a pagan and saying I know God you don't even know how to like you know issue a basic halachic ruling you're not mentally sophisticated enough to understand how the human body works why could you understand the creator so therefore, the traditional Jewish view is most people should just observe the law, do what they're supposed to do, keep mitzvahs, say the prayers, be honest, and leave God up to the select elite. That was the traditional view for hundreds if not thousands of years amongst Jews. And what did Baal Shem come along and say? Well, every Jew has an instinctual knowledge of God that they can tap into, and you can also discover God through everyday life experiences, not simply through the religious practice of Torah mitzvahs. And that was very controversial for both theological and political reasons because it turns out now that the power that the rabbis have is weakened. You'd say everybody has an access to God from their own insides. Yeah? But for those hundreds of years that they just said like God, like the idea, like understanding of God is just for the intellectuals, that, did that not turn people off? So you have to understand something. We live in a world where there's something called secularism. So we view religion as an option. That began in Eastern Europe in the 1700s and in Western Europe in the 1800s. But before then, there was no such thing as religion being an option. Religion meant there, religion was like part of life. There is God, God is real. 
there's word and punishment. That's real. So if you decide, it's like, I don't want to believe in the laws of gravity. Okay, I mean, that's fine. But like, you go do your own thing and we're going to stay away when you start walking off of high places. Right? And that's how people view religion. Right? So if somebody like said, like, I'm giving up my religion, that meant that, that they were, they, they're playing around with like eternal damnation and like reward and punishment. And they took that very seriously. It was, that was something that everybody... There was the culture, it was the norm, Jews, non-Jews. So it's very hard for us to think of it that way. The idea of turning someone off that we relate to now, like in the religion of the second, just didn't exist then. They dealt with which religion? Should you be Christian? Should you be Muslim? That, that was an issue. Right? That, was, that was definitely an issue. Should people you know, switch religions? Maybe the other religions like. But, but no religion? It was, you, you had once here, once there, something. But it became a thing, like I said, in Western Europe around the 1700s, really kicked off and in Eastern Europe in the 1800s. Yeah? When you say that the Alshon says that everyone has an instinctual um, feeling for God or like can relate to God, are you saying every Jew or everyone? So he says every Jew and everyone and they're different. But for our purposes, because the time is directly going to address a Jew, I'm going to talk about Jews. But the Baal Shem Tov said also non-Jews have as well, but it's different. But I don't want to elaborate on that now because that would take us too far out of the actual text that we're going to be studying. We are going to get at the end of chapter one a little bit of a discussion about non-Jews, and we'll talk a little bit about it there. Um, but that's, because that's not the main topic of the text, I don't want to spend too much time on it. I am here 10 to 15 minutes earlier, so you can ask me that. If after we talk about it in class, you want more information. Okay. Now. So if every person, if every Jew, if I'm very accurate for our, this class, if every Jew has an instinctual knowledge of God, well, let's run through a few things. Number one, does intelligence play a role in that? No, because intelligence varies. Um, right? Does age play a role in that? No. So that means people who are not so smart or little children, they have a knowledge of God. In fact, the Baal Shem said sometimes the people who are not so intelligent or the people who are very young, little children, that instinctual knowledge of God is more evident. It's more open. It's something to be more in touch with. Well, if that's the case, following this idea, should we try and be more like a sophisticated um, intellectual or should we be more like a small child? if we want to get in touch with that instinctual knowledge. That's more child, right? The more we identify, the more we value, the more we take, for lack of words, pride in our unique, specific achievements, accomplishments, capabilities that differentiate one from another, the less in touch with that part of ourselves that's all the same, that godly soul that has this instinctual knowledge of God. We should, in the part of ourselves where us and a small child, someone knows less than us, we are all fundamentally the same. And that's where we'll get that instinctual knowledge of God. Now you can see how the rabbis might not like that. They're telling the rabbi he should be more like a common person, a smart person, should you know, be humble and learn to emulate the child. Okay. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with that approach? Why wouldn't that be, I mean it sounds, maybe it sounds nice, but it doesn't sound nice, but what, what, what actually won't work if you really try to do that? You really try to be like some child. Yeah. You need knowledge. Torah knowledge. Why? To practice. 
what? The Torah. Okay, but we're not talking about knowledge of like of, of how to like keep Shabbos. We're talking about knowledge of God. Um, more about this well, spiritual stuff. You're not a small child. That's the problem. So I, I believe Mrs. Gazetner mentioned about not having a dress code. What was the reason for not having a dress code? So that we can like come as we are. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. Because if you pretend to be something you're not, when you go back to being yourself, the stuff that you, so to speak, took, you don't really have. Like some, some other artificial person learned, right? So I'm not a small child. And if I pretend to be a small child, then the pretend small child will have now this knowledge of God. But the real me, who's not a small child, actually doesn't really have that knowledge. In other words, if I'm sophisticated, then I have to have that knowledge in a sophisticated way. If I'm emotional, I have to have it in an emotional way. If I'm, and this is a little bit weird, but take my word for it, if I'm a cynical person, I have to have that knowledge way that it addresses and touches my cynicism. And so, in the third generation of Chassidus, so there's Baal he was the first generation, he had 60 disciples, um, and then there was the Magid of Mizrich, he was the disciple who took over. Does anyone know how long afterward the Baal Shem passed away the Magad took over? The Magad was the, the disciple that took over the whole, there's all these disciples and he took over the leadership of the whole group. Took over a year later. Because the Baal Shem came back after he died, after a year and told his son, he said, you're not, you shouldn't lead the group. Rather, this other rabbi, Rabbi Dover, the Magad is what should lead the group. And then the Magad had 120 disciples. And then what happened at that point is that the Hasidic community split into different groups. That after he died, different disciples took different approaches in how to take this message of the Baal Shem Tov, that every Jew has this innate knowledge of God. How do you apply that? How do you spread that? How do you teach that? And therefore, that's why you probably familiar with the idea there's different kinds of Hasidists. There's, you know, there's Chabad. There's other kinds. That happened in the third generation. And so the Chabad version, which is, this is the book of Chabad Chassidus, had the following argument. If you try and pretend to be a child when you're not, then only your inner child knows God, not the rest of you. So you have to somehow bring together the inner child, godly soul part that knows God and the rest of you. There was another view, which was, no, what you should do is, you should be like a little child. And the fact that the other part of you doesn't know God, that's okay. Suppress that part as much as you can. Okay? So you ended up with two very different schools of thought. We all have a godly soul which has this instinctual, innate knowledge of God, and then we have the rest of our humanity, which is complicated. What should we do with the rest of our humanity? Should we suppress it, put it down, try and block it out as much as possible, or should we find a way of having those two parts of ourselves integrate with each other. Yeah. I do not know anything about Breslov. Chassidus Breslov, for just a historical note, Breslov is like, it's called Chassidus more of a cultural sense, but if you use the word Chassidus strictly meaning the Baal Shem Tov and his disciples and their disciples, Breslov is its own thing. Nachman Breslov was a great grandson of Baal Shem Tov, but he didn't actually gain, he didn't actually develop from that same stream of thought. He had his own stream of thought, which has certain overlapping similarities. Um, and it's a whole own thing. And just like, you know, I'm not a neurosurgeon, I'm not an expert in breast cancer, so I don't really know much about it. I was just wondering if the dancing has to do with being kid. I could assume, but that's just my assumption. I do know that, for instance, in Carlin, the fact that they scream during davening. Have you ever been to a Carlin show? Hi, do I can't even try! Hi, do I have any lies? 
doesn't matter. Like the guy just came in from reading the newspaper, doesn't matter. They start davening, like the whole davening. I davened in front of him once, it's like never again, I can't handle it. What's with the screaming? I don't know. Well, what happens to the fact that you were just reading the newspaper you start screaming your davening? It's gone. It's gone. That's it. Does that like really change your nirvana? It doesn't. So different, different Hasidic groups had different approaches of how do you, what do you do with that godly part of yourself? The Chabad approach is, I have these two different parts. I have the godly part, which has this instinctual knowledge of God. I have the complicated human part. We need to find a way of bringing them into harmony with each other, not having one suppress the other. Now, of those two approaches, which is faster, suppressing or harmony? Suppressing. But if you suppress, what ends up happening? Yeah, so it's, that's a short but long way. A long but short way is to work on harmonizing the godly soul that every Jew has with our messy humanity. And so really there's a double meaning here. It's long in the sense we're focusing on God as opposed to individual parts of Judaism. And it's long in the sense we're trying to harmonize our whole being with our godly self rather than just prioritize the godly soul and suppress everything else. And that's a lot of work, a lot of process. And we'll, we're gonna discuss well, what does a lot mean? More than you want. But if you do the work, what happens? You actually get there. Now, getting there is not a black and white thing. Okay, think of it like um, learning. It's not like one day you didn't know anything and then you learned and then poof, you know everything, right? It comes in degrees, so the degree to which you work on it is the degree to which, but it's not like, it's, it, it, it's not like, oh, I put in five minutes worth of work, I get five minutes, it doesn't work like that either, right? Consistency and time and effort and integrity have their payoffs. Okay, so that's the approach of the whole time. Okay, now we're going to start chapter one. I took half of him. I said last, I one time to suggest his three classes. That was in class Who is the Valcanto? Tzvi. Rabbi Tzvi. And what happened to him? He was a Hasidic not he was not the leader of the whole community. Hashem had a son and a daughter, a son named Tzvi and a daughter named um, Adol. 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 Okay. Yes. She had, she had some sons who became Hasidic Like U-D-E-L. Adol. U-D-E-L. What does it mean? I know some people go by like Adel. It's an acronym. It's an acronym. And I don't remember what it's an acronym. Okay. Okay. We're going to start with chapter one. Now, a little bit of a, a, a note before we get started. I broke chapter one into two. I'm going to try and do this in units. Okay? Um, because I think that helps just people organizing information. Now, obviously, there's chapters, so the chapters would be the best unit, right? Why did I split chapter one into more than one unit? And the reason is that chapter one actually has a bunch of things which you can think of laying the groundwork, setting up some issues, some problems, using original source texts. And at the end of that point, you're just left with a framework to then eventually fill in as you learn the rest of the time. And then the second half, he actually starts laying in some of the new ideas that are going to be used. So I decided just to like draw the distinction that the first unit, we're laying the groundwork, we're not, we're, we're, we're building like little boxes that we have to fill in eventually, but we don't really, at the end, they know anything. We just know what we don't know. 
And then the second half, we're going to start actually learning ideas and knowing what things are, hopefully. All right? Okay. Chapter one. It has been taught. Nida, end of chapter three. Nida is a tractate of the Talmud. Um, and, and there's a chapter three. That's where it's taught. Does anyone know how you say it was taught in Aramaic? Very good. Hence, that's where we, you know. An oath is administered. Okay, one thing, actually, I want to get this. Um, the Tanya is written in a style, one of them is in style, of, um, for a scholarly person um, very familiar with Torah who lived in the late 1700s. So that obviously is referring to someone who's male, referring to someone who would not, the level of scholarship that was that existed then far surpasses nowadays, so people were not like looking stuff up, they like knew the entire Talmud. The, 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 the Alter Rebbe had, a, 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 had two, two, originally two groups of disciples. The lower group knew the entire Babylonian Jerusalem Talmud, the entire Tanakh, the written Bible, all of the Midrashim and the Zohar by heart. That was the prerequisite to get it. So we're talking a level of scholarship that like, rest, nowadays rabbis just look like they're ignorant. So it's written assuming a lot of background. It's written assuming the person is a man. However, the ideas, that's the style, the ideas are not limited to them. In fact, Alton writes in, 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 a, in a letter that he wrote an introduction that I'm assuming most people are not going to understand what I'm writing, and so therefore I'm setting up that people should learn with the teacher. And the teacher is meant to help explain. Okay, so we always have to have kind of two levels. There's what is, it what, is it, what is actually being said, and then what does he actually mean? And then take what he means, and then you obviously have to apply that how that relates to you and your unique circumstances, right? Because you're not the exact person in the style that it was written for. I mean, it was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. It was written in English. Okay. So it has been taught. An oath is administered to him before birth, warning him. Be righteous and be not wicked. Even if the whole world tells you that you are righteous, regard yourself as if you were wicked. Okay. How many things is that telling you to do? Three. Three. What are the three? Be righteous. Be righteous. Be not wicked. Be not wicked. Regard yourself as if you're wicked. Even when? Even if you're wrong. It doesn't say even if you're righteous. Even if you tell them. No, the Lord tells you that you're righteous. Do you have that problem? Everyone walk around telling you how righteous you are? <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, This oath is being given to every single Jew before they're born. Okay. Now, what's the point in making you take an oath before you're born? First off, I want to stop there. Isn't it weird to talk about what you did before you were born? Okay. Well, it's, you, you asked about like, turning people off from Judaism. One of the differences between the secular mindset and the religious mindset, I'm using the word religious as opposed to Jewish, because I want to, it's, it's, it's more general. We think of our lives in the secular mindset, this affects all of us, even someone who's quote unquote religious. We think of our existence as beginning from when we're born and basically ending when we die. That's our existence. And that causes us to weigh things in a certain way. Okay? 
a religious mindset, a religious culture sees your existence as preceding your birth and continuing after your death, which means that being here in the physical world is a temporary thing. And then how does that cause you to look at things and weigh things and value things? It's very different, right? Okay. So I'm just going to give you an example. Okay. Um, according to the Torah, would it be, should a person um, transgress a mitzvah or die? That's their choice. The one or the other. Transgress the mitzvah. Yeah, it depends, depends right? Depends which mitzvah. Yeah. What? Depends on a lot of... So, so there's two things. There's the legal question. But I'm going I'm to ask you the legal question. I'm going to ask you an ethical question. I want to know what... So the other times, like, before you ask the rabbi, you already have the answer you want the answer to be. So let's say I have incorporated the values of the Torah. What would I want the answer to be? And then the question is, what does the Torah tell me? To die. That's what you so want there's to a do. good argument to be made that the underlying value is that really you should rather die. I'd rather die because like death is not the end of my existence, right? It's like if you have a really bad vacation, you're staying in a really lousy hotel. Like, there's no point in staying. Just leave, right? If the physical existence is just one of the many ways you could exist, but you could exist in other ways, like why hold on to it so strongly? And so it's very important. There's a lot of questions and a lot of halachas and a lot of things about Judaism are based on the fact that fundamentally you do, you do come into existence when you were born. You don't cease to exist when you die. And so that raises questions like, why are you even here? Like, why not stay where you were before you were born? Right? What's the point of being here? Is it worth staying here? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In that context, before you arrive here, you're given an oath. Now, what's the point of that oath? The point of making an oath. That doesn't help because I'm gonna. I made an oath, so I'm gonna stick to it. Well, first off, are you sticking to the oath personally, or you don't want to say publicly? What? Well, we know what the oath is. Yeah, be righteous, be not wicked. I will confess. I don't think I'm keeping the oath. So, what's the point? It's not, it's not like you, it's not like you're programmed to do that. If you're programmed to do that, we'd all just be righteous and not wicked. That's clearly not the case. It shows that you have the potential. Okay. So that's good. It's, it's what the soul wants. Does anyone think that the soul wants to be wicked? I mean, I, we don't know a lot about the soul, but let's just take an educated guess. Nobody thinks the soul, left to its own device, wants to be wicked. So what's the point of making take note? Like, even without the oath, it wants, doesn't want to be wicked. Like, once you put it into the... Oh, I mean, because you're not just done with the goggles, all the animals. So, which and would bring you to wickedness. Okay, so let's... That's very, very good. Let's, let's talk a little bit about oath. When you make an oath, which, by the way, you should not do, as a general rule. Do you know why you should not do that? Because if you break it, it's like eating pork. It's that level of sin. One of the biblical commandments is not to break your oaths. So, don't make oaths. 
But what's the purpose of making an oath? It's like committing your soul to something. That's right. That's saying, I know that my desire that I feel now would get me to do what I want to do or not do what I don't want to do. But I also know that I will feel differently later. And when I feel different later, I won't feel like I have the power, the wherewithal to stand up to you know, the temptations, the whatever is going on. And so this, I've created this additional level of obligation. I've, I've subjugated myself to something beyond how I feel. Okay. Have we all had the experience where we've decided we want to do something later, but when we get to later, now we don't want to do it anymore? Right. An oath is meant to solve that problem. What, you, you, never, you never had that problem? I'm sort of I'm by the way, tomorrow I will be a better person. Tomorrow I will be a better person. You know what the great thing about tomorrow is? It's never today. It's always tomorrow. Yeah. I'm just thinking that if somebody were keeping the oath, they would have to say that they're not, right? Because it says, to be righteous, don't be wicked, and view yourself as wicked. So when you say you don't think you're keeping the oath, maybe you are. Maybe. Right? Isn't that a very question? That is a very good question. Okay. It, depends, it, depends how, how, it depends how deeply we want to take the idea of regarding. Uh-huh. Right? In other words, like, does that mean you should be fully convinced? Does that mean like, you should like... No, because like... Like for instance, I can, I can, I can, um, I'll give you an, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, sometimes people tell themselves stuff in their head and they like quasi believe it, somewhat believe it, but it's good enough to like influence how they should behave. Like you tell yourself, like you really deep down feel that you're more important than the rest of us. You do because... Everybody does. But you can tell yourself that you're not really more important than the rest of us and you can kind of convince yourself enough to like, cause you to just act normally. Because if you really felt that you're more important than everyone else all the time, very, very strongly, right, you have no problem like, being rude and not nice to people. But you can, you can, you can, so you can somewhat convince yourself you're not the most important, but you can't fully convince yourself because you could fully convince yourself like you would never prioritize yourself over other people. So there's like the middle ground. So it depends how, how strictly you want to. Take, I should guard yourself. I mean, I should be fully convinced. If you're doing an oath, shouldn't you be fully convinced? Well, it depends what it means. Okay. I mean, I should be really committed to doing it. So, getting back to the oath. So, the idea is like this Your soul, what does that tell you? Is your soul on its own strong enough to deal with the challenges of being in this physical world? Is it strong enough? No, how do you know it's not strong enough? Look at us. Well, how do we know from the text? You need the oath. On the other hand, what is the oath giving you? Like, when you make an oath, where do you, what, like, not this oath, any oath. When a person makes an oath, where are they getting that extra power to be committed from? Like, they go into the power store to, like, I'm going to get extra, if you're going to say, I make an oath that I will do something, where are you getting that extra power to commit from? I mean, everything comes from a shell. But are you getting it from outside of yourself or from inside yourself? So this is a little bit weird. Like, you make an oath because you don't think you have the power to stick with what you decide, right? But then you get the power from where? So then how many parts of you are there then? 
How many, how many parts of you do there have to be there? Two. There's the part of you that wants to do it, but if you don't make the oath, you won't be able to actually get, get it done. And there's the part of you... Yeah. you have markers?
and there's no connection between them. That's what would happen. This is before you're born, this is once you're born. So but then, if you didn't have the oath, would everything you would do with your body now wouldn't at all go up or be in any way, like, have anything to do with the top? The right, but we're more concerned about the other direction. Where is your ability to persevere no matter what found? Over here. Where is your ability to lead? Where is the fact you're in, in, influenced by what's going on? Remember I said before that, you're, that, that your soul is hard and impervious, yeah? And that your brain is mushy and is going to go down? Okay. So this part, the head, that's the asa. The foot is not the asa. So if there's no oak, what ends up happening? The soul that goes into your body becomes victim to whatever the body is influenced by. And now we'll be able to keep the oak, we'll be able to be righteous, whatever righteousness you want. You'll be influenced by that. So the purpose of the oak is to make this connection very, 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 very tight, so that even when the foot goes into the body, there's still some connection there. Does that connection mean it's always the strongest connection? No, but it's always there. So this idea of the oath is, this part of me, when it, it goes into my body and it wants to be good, but chocolate is so tasty. Keep it on your kitchen. And this part of me, that doesn't ever get influenced by anything else ever. How do I make sure they don't get separated before I get born? You know, that gives me the power. Yeah? Is the floating head like an angel? No, that's your soul. No, I know, but I'm saying is that kind of like what it no. no. Angels, angels hang out over here. Angels are, are, are not low, are not so pathetic that they get influenced by a body, and they're not so lofty as if they uh, are impervious that they hang out in space. Some angels are bad at trying to cut the cord. Some angels are good at trying to protect the cord. So I want to have good angels. Anyway, but that's the other. <laughs> Otherwise, what would happen is that your soul would be cut in two. The part that goes into your body, the foot of the soul, would be disconnected from the head of the soul, the asun, the, the strong, impervious part that can overcome anything. And so to make sure it doesn't happen, that empowering, that connection, and that's what an oath is all about. Okay? And actually in Hebrew, the word oath actually um, relates to other Hebrew words that actually mean that. One of them is, the word for oath is shavua, and it's related to the word soiva, which means to be saved, to be, to be full. Have everything you need. Yeah. So are some people's like strength the connection between the head and the foot closer together, like Sadiqin for example? So there is a differentiation yeah, between yeah. the yeah. hand goes into the Yes. That's you know. But we'll get to that stuff later. But the point is everybody has what? Every single Jew, the head part of the soul, the A-son, that strong, impervious, perfect part, is always has some connection to the part that's susceptible to influence, right? That's like the obligation of an oath. The fact that I want to do something and I make an oath means I'm not going to make it depend upon how I feel later. There's some other part of me that has a deeper, strong commitment that will still be relevant later on. Okay, so that's the oath. Okay, well now we're going to turn to the content of the oath. Our oath is to be righteous, not to be wicked, and even if the whole world tells you that you're righteous, you should regard yourself as if you are wicked. Okay. Now, 
I'm going to ask you a question which is total non sequitur. Okay? You, those of you who are not from America, you might not be able to answer this question. But those of you from America, you know Heinz ketchup? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is it ketchup? No. Yes. What? Is, what? is it ketchup or is it not ketchup? Yeah, it's ketchup. What is ketchup? Now, here's the thing. There's two ways of asking what is ketchup. There was like, I don't know what the, I've never heard of ketchup. Like, is ketchup a dog? Is ketchup, like, like you really just, it's a foreign word. It's like if I were to throw out a, um, do you know what a ritualarium is? No. Right, so that's a word, you don't know what it means at all. A ritualarium is a mikvah. It's the technical English translation for a mikvah, but nobody uses it. You know what your phylacteries are? Phylacteries. No, you, just phylacteries. Philip. I don't know, there's no English word for this to my knowledge. Anyway, so, like, I think we all know what ketchup is in that basic sense, right? Okay. So here's the thing. In Israel, in Israel, there is actually a law. Don't ask me how this law counts. It passed, but there is a law that defines exactly what ketchup is. <laughs> ketchup must, is, is a product that contains no less than, I believe, 22% actual tomato product. So therefore, Awesome, the Israeli food company, sued Heinz when they started importing ketchup to Israel for false marketing. So Heinz ketchup in Israel had a choice. They could either change the recipe and add more tomato, because they were like at 12%, or they could no longer label it as ketchup. They decided to add more tomato, which is why even Heinz ketchup in Israel will taste different than Heinz ketchup in America. So what is the point of all of that? What? Yeah, we're talking about ketchup and lots. <laughs> and how it tastes different. Yeah. <laughs> 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 more tomato. More <laughs> tomato. What, what, what is the point of all that? You can know what a word means and still have a question of exactly what the definition of the word is. Mm-hmm. Right? We all know righteous means. What does righteous mean? <clears throat> what? Yeah, what is the word? So, I mean, look, it means an English word, right? We can worry about the Hebrew word later. What does the English word righteous mean? Comes right. Yeah, right. Comes with right. Like right. It's good. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's right. right you get that. Wicked. It's the opposite of righteous. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty straightforward, right? By the way, in Hebrew, it's also the word for righteous in Hebrew. Anyone know what the word is? Sadik, which is derived from the word sadik, which means justice. Justice or what's right. Same. So there's being right. And then there's, I guess, wicked is basically wrong. Yeah, pretty simple. Now, can we debate and have a discussion over what really defines somebody as righteous? Yeah. Like, how many good deeds do you have to do to be righteous? How many pages of Talmud do you have to master to be considered a Talmud? 15? 16? Right? Like, you can debate that. So, that's the main kind of discussion we're going to talk about here is looking at sources as to exactly how does the Torah define what it means to be righteous? How does the Torah define what it means to be wicked? We know what righteous means. It means the way you're supposed to be. Wicked means like you're going against the way you're supposed to be. But what's the definition? Before we get to that, we're going to complicate it. Why? Because this is how Judaism works. We complicate things before we make them simpler, and we don't always make them simpler afterwards. Fine. This requires to be understood for it contradicts the Mishnaic dictum. What is a dictum? Directive. Yeah, directive. Teaching. 
Why did they use the word dictum? I don't know. But that's what the word translator used. Yeah. I have a question about the oath quick. So it's telling you to be one way, to be righteous, but then to see yourself not in that way. Mm-hmm. Like why? Well, I'm not going to answer that question because we're going to ask a better question. Okay. And I want to explain why that question is a better question. Okay? So be patient. This requires to be understood for contradicts the Mishnahic dictum and be not wicked in your own estimation. Now we have a better question. Why is that a better question than your question? Because it's talking specifically about you. If I ask why about something, this is a good learning thing. If I ask why about something, what assumption am I making? There's a possibility that it's, that it's that it's, that it's right. And you well, I mean, that's right. Otherwise, like, I'm not asking why it's that case. I'm saying it shouldn't be that case, right? So, I mean, it is that case. And there's a reason. There's a reason, right? Okay. What if the thing that is we're talking about, I'm not even sure what that means yet. In if other there's words, not a reason. Or, or if there's not a reason, right? In other words, I get, if I see somebody intelligent doing something, yeah. Someone who's who's thoughtful. I can ask them why are you doing that, right? If I see somebody who just like doesn't think a lot before they act, it doesn't make a lot of sense to ask why are you doing that. And this happens all the time. People ask you why you do that. And you need the honest answers. I don't know why I did that, but I want to come up with something that makes me sound good. Mm-hmm. So like you come up with a story and then you eventually convince yourself those are your own motivations and you develop a whole personality inside your head, which has nothing to do with real life. And then it turns out that you aren't that person, you have a crisis, and you need to see a therapist. Anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. So, we have one source that tells us that we're supposed to see ourselves as wicked, and we have another source that tells us that we're not supposed to see ourselves as wicked, right? Yeah. So, until we figure out whether we're supposed to see ourselves as wicked or not, in what sense we are supposed to, we can't even ask the question of why. But one saying not see yourself that way, one saying be this way, and the other is saying but see yourself in a different way. No. No, 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 It says in, be righteous. In, yeah, there's be righteous, be not wicked. Then it says, even if the whole world tells you that you are righteous, regard yourself as wicked. Then we have another source that says, be not wicked in your own estimation, which is a fancy way of saying what? No, that don't should be you, wicked. No, don't, not, don't be wicked. Don't regard don't yourself see yourself as wicked. wicked. So, are, so it's not even clear that you're supposed to see yourself as wicked or not. Right, you see what I'm saying? Like, like this instruction, see yourself as wicked, regard yourself as wicked, that's not even clear what that means. Because, it, it, because, we, because we have two sources that on the face of it contradict each other. Okay? Let me, let me go back to the board. Make a chart. Make a little clear. Yes. Um, well, I was just going to say about that, that, I mean, the way that I was interpreting it was that, I mean, if you're trying to be righteous and you just see yourself as being completely righteous and incapable of being wicked, then you don't really have a possibility to improve anymore. But if you see yourself as having a possible flaw, then you can improve. But it's also important not to let that become the sole focus of your life is about you not being wicked. That you should try to be better, but you should be also aware that there's okay. always room to grow. So you're trying to resolve the contradiction. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, 
I'm going to make a rule in the class, which is that we do not try and resolve questions until we first understand the questions. Right? One of one of the uh, there's there's a, well, something we say in our prayers, which is that we, we ask Hashem to remove the evil inclination, the satan, from in front of us and from behind us. Why would we do that? Why from front of us and behind us? Because the way the evil inclination works is it ends up doing things, you know, wants us to do the right thing in the wrong order. That's usually how it works. And what that means in learning is that when some, when the text says something as a statement, a fact, our evil inclination wants us to question before we understand it. When the text asks a question, we want to answer it before we see this problematic question. So we answer when we're supposed to be asking, we ask when we're supposed to be answering. Now, what you said as an answer is an answer. It doesn't have to be the timing answer. When you get into why, it's not the timing answer. But before we get to that, I want to just clarify those questions. Okay? You have being, and you have how you see yourself. How should you be? Wicked or righteous? Righteous. Okay. And not wicked, yeah? That's good. How should you see yourself? Well, I have one source, right? And that source is from the Tractate of Nida. And what does it say? Should I see myself as righteous or wicked? Wicked, wicked. And then I have a source from the Mishnah and Avos. And what does that say? Not wicked. Not wicked. Now. This is the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of God. Last time I checked, God does not really contradict himself. So, I can't just say one is right and one is wrong. I have to somehow twist them, work with them, clarify them so that they're not contradicting. Because if I just take them simply, then they're contradicting, right? Only once I've done that, then I can ask the question, why should I do whatever I presume? that resolution. And it could be at that point that why is so obvious. It could be it's not. But I don't even know how I'm supposed to see myself yet. It can't be that I'm supposed to see myself as just wicked flat out, because that would contradict not wicked. It can't be seen that I'm supposed to see myself as not wicked flat out, because that would contradict wicked. So I figure, how should I see myself? One answer. Is that these are, you should see yourself as not so bad, because you're trying to do things good. But you have room to grow. Yeah? Okay. Let's use the text. Why do you think the Altar doesn't think that that's a good answer? There are people who answer that question that way, but the Altar Rebbe, world of time, doesn't think. In the text, what have we seen that might make that seem like it's not a good answer? We haven't read that much text, so it's not that hard to find. Okay. Um, so the rule is like this that when you are teaching people what is and is not the case, like halacha. When you're giving clear instructions, you should not use politically correct language. When you are speaking to people in a um, 
conversational kind of thing you should. So for instance, if somebody's about to do something wrong, then you need to, should say the word wrong. If you talk in general about how sometimes people have a tendency to do not positive things, then that's a, a better kind of general mindset to have. So the Rebbe has a total talk on this, and he differentiates that when the Torah wants to speak about non-kosher animals, in the context of stories, it says non-kosher. It says not pure. It doesn't, whereas in the halacha, it says very clear, it uses the halacha word for impure, very just flat out. So in the context of providing a clear educational instruction, you sometimes you call a spade a spade. But as your general everyday speech, you want to use positive words as much as possible. Okay, what what can tell us that that this idea that wicked means that that the, the wicked means I should see myself as having room to grow, and not wicked is I'm not so bad because I'm working on it. Yeah. Um, it says that even if the whole tells you that you are are righteous, regard yourself as if you were okay. in the past. That's the reason. Okay, now, the question is, who's the whole world? Now, if you guys all tell me that I'm righteous, like, okay, I know that. Who's the whole world? Everybody. Everybody. Okay. Who's everybody include? Just your mentors. And your mentors, your confidence, your teachers, your spouse. There was once a famous rabbi who married off his daughter to a, uh, a very well-known Torah scholar who was a young student. And people told him, you know, your, your son-in-law, he's, 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 he's going to, he's an amazing person. He's, 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 he's a very great scholar and he's very God-fearing. And so the rabbi said, that is a Torah scholar we all know, but is God-fearing only my daughter would know. Because there are things that other people don't know. You don't know what goes on in someone's private life. You don't know what's going on in their, in their personal issues. Now, if somebody, even the people know them intimately well and see them in their most vulnerable places and moldings, their confidence, their, their spouse, their parents, their, their close friends, their mentors, and they're still telling you, no, there's really, you've done it. There's no room to improve. Right? Then, <laughs> like, it's a, like, I mean, first off, I'm trying to imagine what, what, kind of, what kind of person you have to be for everybody who knows you on the deepest levels to really say that we don't think you have anything to improve on. Like, that's like a theoretical limit. And so the way the Al-Tarab understands it is that you should see yourself as wicked it means basically everybody. Because there's no, there's, 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 no matter how, even if you've gotten to the point where there's literally, you can't find anything you need to improve on, you're still supposed to see yourself as wicked. And so he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't take that answer. Now, as an idea, it's a very true idea that we should all, as general, knowing ourselves, are we generally try to do good things and work on ourselves? Yeah. So we shouldn't like, beat ourselves up too much. And do we all know that we have room to improve? Yeah, so we shouldn't be too arrogant. So as an idea, it's a correct idea. He doesn't think that that's what's going on here. Okay. Second question. Furthermore, if a man considers himself to be wicked, he will be grieved at heart and depressed and will not be able to serve God joyfully and with a contented heart. While if he is not perturbed by this self-appraisal, it may lead him to irreverence God forbid. This is a separate question. Okay? So the first question was a textual question. What that means is I have one text that says one thing, I have another text that says something else, and they appear to contradict, they need to be resolved. 
do I have any preconceived notions as to what they have to mean? No. I mean, whatever, as long as it makes sense, as long as they fit together. What's the second question, though? The second question is a psychological question. Forget the mission. And this goes back to why, to, to why they all do it. If you tell somebody they should see themselves as wicked, what does he think is going to happen? What does he think is going to happen to that person? He'll be grieved at heart and depressed. And what will happen if he's grieved at heart? Mm-hmm. He can't serve God joyfully. He can't serve God joyfully. Or what if he's not grieved at heart? Become apathetic. Are those the only two options for thinking that you're a bad person? No. Is there a third option? No. Yeah. Yeah, like work on yourself, right? What you said, right? Why does he bring that as the, like that's like the obvious thing. Right, the obvious thing is like if you think you've got a problem, so fix it. Right, because he's under, he's clearly understanding that this wickedness is something that is that is built into who you are. Right, you can't escape it. Even if even if you've done everything right, so everybody's telling you righteous, it's something that is just fundamental to you. You can't fix it. You can't get rid of it. You can't improve that. Now, many of us have sometimes we identify a particular thing in life. We just feel like we're doomed. Like this, I messed up in this regard, and that's it. And what happens if you spend a lot of time thinking about the area in your life where you feel you're just messed up and there's nothing you can do to fix it? No, I'm down. <laughs> feel down. And what if you decide it's, you know, so you're down and that's not good? What if you decide that it's not going to bother you? It's not true. What? You can't let something that. You can't let something that. You're upset about not bothering you because it's like your emotions bothers you and everyone around you. Yeah, but you could work on it to let go and say it's not a big deal and, like, you know. It turns, it's okay stop then. caring about it. Then you just stop caring about it, right? So that, he's under, clearly understanding that the wicked is more, something more fundamental, something you just can't just work on and change. Because if it was something you could work on and change, <laughs> yeah, it's like I made a mistake. Okay, you made a mistake, fix it. I am a mistake. Well, now, now I've got a problem. <laughs> now I'm doing, like either I have to stop caring about the fact that I'm a mistake or I become miserable. So there's clearly here like out of two levels here. There's one level of stuff which I know I have to work on and I know I can improve and I know I can work on it. Paying attention to it means I can just work on it. And should I do that? Yeah. Should I be optimistic and take some pride in the fact that I'm working on those things? Yeah. Should I become arrogant and think I'm perfect? No. What about there's apparently something else that no matter how much I work on, how much I improve, I'm somehow messed up. And now I've got a problem. Because if I, if I care about that, then I won't be able to serve God with joy. And if I not care about it, then I'm going to stop caring about it. And that's itself a problem. Now, is it clear that we know what that thing is? What's this wickedness that he's referring to? It's got to be something that's, that, that, that's basically universal, right? Or at least that applies to the overall majority of people. It's not like something that relates specifically to me. It's something that almost every person ends up having to contend with, such that it makes sense to make every single soul have to have this mindset, have to have this attitude. Okay. So what we have at this point is we have these kinds of, there's clearly two kinds of, quote, wickedness. There's a wickedness that we can solve, 
And if that was the wickedness we were talking about, what would the solution be? You have the perfect so, solution. What should we do? It's the kind of wickedness that we can work on. Better yourself. And we should feel pride in the fact we're working on ourselves and humility on that we still have what to do. But if it's something, there's this other kind of wickedness that is being spoken about that no matter how much you work on, how much you improve, but even the people who are closest to you say, there's nothing more you can do. Even then, there's something messed up. That will feel like, <laughs> how are we supposed to deal with that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was just thinking more about the godly soul versus the animal soul. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, because you need to be aware that the animal soul is something that you have to grapple with and that it's something that is a part of you. And in a way you have to tame it, I guess, that you know it is kind of wicked by nature but your godly soul isn't. So, and both of those things that are part of you and exist inside of you. Mm -hmm. Right, so that's actually along the lines of the author was saying. Now he hasn't introduced the idea of godly soul animal soul. A lot of us have heard of ideas before, but when you learn Italian in order, it's important to remember that he wrote it in order. So like, if he hasn't brought up an idea, uh, if he hasn't brought up an idea that's unique to Hasidus, it's because he had, he, he, he's yet to introduce it. Like the other background, the Kabbalah, the Talmud, that he assumes that we're so he hasn't brought up that there's even two souls to begin with. You don't know that yet. Um, but it's going to go be a little bit deeper. It's, it's not just that you have to grapple with it, even if you don't have to grapple with your animal soul. Even if you got to the point where you think your animal soul is, you, you, you've harmonized with it. Even when you've achieved that, what he's going to say, what did you really, what, what do you need to be convinced of? That it's not real. Let me give you an, an example. In war, what is the difference between a ceasefire and a surrender? Two countries fighting. Ceasefire is in the on both sides. Surrender happens both. Okay. Actually, both sides have to give a surrender. Sometimes they don't give surrenders. Ceasefire. Yeah, there's something called no quarter, which is the, the winning side doesn't accept surrender, just kills everybody on the other side. Ancient wars, that was more common, actually. Yeah. Uh, Rome, had, Rome had a policy, which is that if they, that if they did this in Israel, Rome had a policy, which is that if the city didn't surrender before the siege, then they wouldn't accept surrender after the siege. They would just kill everybody or sell a bunch of slavery. That was an incentive to get people to surrender before the battle. Anyway, what's the difference between surrender and ceasefire? Ceasefire? Yeah, both countries What? Both countries are in trouble. Not necessarily. Ceasefire, like, implies temporary. Surrender is In principle, surrender is saying is, we are not fighting anymore. Like, we're, like, we're done. We are not going to fight. And you really mean it. And so, in principle, the fight is over. Whereas a ceasefire is that even though you're not fighting now, the intent is to resume fighting later. <laughs> okay. So this fight, if you want to put it, between the godly soul and the animal soul, even when you think you've won, it's just it's just a ceasefire. That's the basic idea. You don't act, it doesn't surrender. That's good. Now, what does that fully mean? We're going to get to that, but that's going to be the underlying idea is that it's, it's not, it's, 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 it's not, even when you think you fully harmonized it, you have it as a ceasefire. Because you can't get rid of it. Well, that's more complicated. We'll do explanation why. Okay. But that helps us maybe resolve the first question, right, about how the mission is going to, Contra contradicts the oath, right? 
because when the mission, the, the, the oath is talking about like you, you should always visit to witness ceasefire, and the mission is going to be talking about like you know like you're actually a wicked person, you're not actually a wicked person, like you're, you're a decent person. In fact, you achieved a ceasefire with the animal soul. That's pretty impressive. But the second thing is more problematic. That's like a serious problem. Because if I really care about harmonizing myself, and I can never really do that, then I will become miserable and won't be able to serve God with joy. Or I won't let it bother me. If I don't let it bother me, it means I stop caring about harmonizing myself. So that, we kind of answered the textual question, but the psychological question, that's a serious problem. There is a difference in things that happen to you, but not things that you can actively involve. So, like, here's the thing if you stop caring about harmonizing yourself, then all the work to try and harmonize yourself, you just stop doing. And that's if things that happen to you, like, that you have zero influence over whatsoever, but you're doing this work to harmonize the godly soul and animal soul to bring the you know, the godly part and the physical part of you together. And at the same time, like, you, you're convinced that you'll never achieve it anyway. Like, that's not a sustainable state. Like, you'll be miserable about that work. And you'll, like, do it just because you have to. And resent it. Or, because it's pointless. Or alternatively, you'll just stop doing it. Right? In other words, can you long-term live life doing something that you just feel is pointless? You could if someone puts a gun to your head. Right? You could if you feel like you have to, but you can't do it joyfully. Mm-hmm. Or, you don't have a, or you don't think it's important enough to do, and so you just stop doing it. But to do something with joy and enthusiasm, you have to feel like you could achieve it. And that's where this problem is. Like if, if no matter what I do, this wickedness, this fact that there's always a conflict between my animal soul and God's soul is always going to be there, then how can I keep working on it? I'm either going to work on it with joy. I either just do it because I have to, or I'll just, you know, say, you know, give up. I have other things I can do in my life. Now that problem is actually such a central problem to Tanya, um, and Tanya's the whole book. The problem with the whole book is that you can often miss the point in the book because you read page after page after page. So the Tzemach Tzedek, the, the third Chabad Rebbe, the grandson of the Al-Jabal who wrote Tanya, he has a Chassidic discourse where he says that people often miss the point of the answer to this question because the book is so long. So I will tell you the point. It's the basic answer. What would you rather have? A million dollars or lose a million dollars? Those are your choices. You either lose a million dollars or you gain a million dollars. You gain a million dollars. Okay. So losing a million dollars, would you rather have not gaining a million dollars or losing a million dollars? Not gaining. Right, not gaining. Just leave it alone. Don't put me a million dollars into debt. That would be bad. Okay. Can you imagine finding out that you just went a million dollars into debt and being thrilled, just joyous? Just like, like you can't contain how much joy you have. Well, what if someone you really, really cared about had a life-threatening illness and you just found out that they were, got a special pill drug or something, you should pill something, something quick, that cures the illness right away, and now they're perfectly healthy. And it happens to be that the price tag of that is a million dollars. 
now it happens. Right. The joy that this person that you care about right, is, 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 is healthy completely sets aside the issue of... It's not that you're happy now that you're losing the money, right? It puts things in a different context. In other words, there's the relationship you have with the money is one relationship. There's a relationship you have this person you care about is another relationship. And that relationship is so much more important to you. It's so much more central to you. It changes how you experience the loss of the money. And the basic answer is like this. There's one relationship we have to whether we're successful or we're a failure. Whether we are accomplishing, whether we're not accomplishing, you know, where we are on the ladder of achievement, whether it's financial achievement or spiritual achievement, doesn't matter. That's one thing that we're all emotionally connected to. But there's another thing we can be emotionally connected to, which is how are, is the fact that we have an opportunity to be connected to God. And the basic answer is going to come through the whole thing is that the more we're able to derive joy in the fact that we can connect to God, the less the fact that it's an ongoing struggle that never ends is going to bother us. The more that we have joy in the fact that we have an opportunity to connect to God, that that actually speaks to us, the less the, the, fact, the, less the fact that it's an ongoing struggle that we never really achieve anything fully is going to actually bother us. So in other words, in other words the more we take joy in the fact that God appreciates how much how hard we work to connect to him and we feel close to him in that the less the fact that we're not fully accomplishing you know some sort of other thing like bringing ourselves into full alignment or whatever is going to bother us now that's a nice idea you can make a bumper sticker right? is that like if you focus on the destination more than the journey you focus on who you're with rather than what you're accomplishing and, but the thing is, in order to really process that and make sense of that and get to that, there's a lot of background that's going to We need to introduce the godly soul and the animal soul and, and talk about what a vain is. There's all this stuff on the way. But the other thing is that who I'm with is more important than what I've achieved. So you actually have to be righteous in order to view yourself as... Like, well, we don't know. Because other, otherwise, then you'll fall into the, the traps. You're not... Well, we don't know what righteous. We don't know what the definition of righteous is yet. Well, I mean, it's like more than just another thought in the book. Um, I mean, just kind of what you were saying that you're supposed to view yourself as wicked, but in fact, that in spite of that, you're able to get close to Hashem. You're able to go along with that. The fact that you're wicked, it doesn't matter. As much. You're aware of it, but it doesn't right. affect you and hurt you in the same way. Right, because you, you have this broader context. Right. So this idea, in other words, like this. I want to just end you with a little visualization, and then we'll continue with Reza next week. If I see God as over there in Judaism as a journey to God, then there's no answer to this question. But if I see God as right here, and He's with me as long as I'm walking in that direction then I have an answer to this question. Is God at the end and I'm walking towards him or is God walking side by side as long as I'm walking in the right direction? And that's the, the difference. As long as I'm moving in the right direction, God is with me. It doesn't matter where I am along the path and the path could be infinite. Okay? And when you take joy in that God is with you, you can also say, yeah, and it's hard <laughs> that the path is infinitely long, but okay. It doesn't, doesn't, 
doesn't feel pointless. I have to run because I do have a class in 15 minutes, but I will be here by Hashem on Monday um, at 2.15ish. You can ask me then. Or you can send me by question by email. Um, remember, it's two ends. Coffin with two ends. Thank you.